Praise the Lord. Thank you, team. Growing up as a younger in a large family full of older siblings, very successful older siblings, my parents assumed that the way to motivate me to succeed like my siblings is by telling me that I'll never measure up to them. (laughs) That's the absolute truth, that I'll never be as successful as they are. I mean, a bank president at the age of 29 was one of my older siblings. There's a, you just, you'll, you'll, because you never work as hard as they did. Well, I did not know how hard they worked. I wasn't born. And this went on and on and on. Now, I knew my parents loved me. I, I have no doubt about this. But what this did to me personally is it developed something in me that I did not understand until I got older, and that is um, I love a challenge. If you ever want me to do something, tell me it cannot be done. I think my colleagues know that. (laughs) Now, the problem with this kind of reverse psychology, uh, and it has a big problem, and I want you to listen carefully, because those of you parents and grandparents, it's very important. That method of being critical in words or in in action, this put down all the time, uh, it can backfire. I'm so grateful to the Lord it did not backfire in my life, but it can really backfire. In fact, I learned, I tell people, I tell my kids that, I learned what not to do with them. for I always attempted, and they will testify to that, that I attempted to build them up, not tear them down. I'm always telling them that they can do, and there's nothing impossible with God. I always attempted to tell them that they can do something rather than tell them that they can't measure up to somebody else. And in all truth, that's kind of the thing that has developed in me, even in in pastoring, when I'm talking to people, when I'm ministering here. It's always the desire of my heart to be an encourager rather than a discourager. To be critical of other people and their motives uh, can be very destructive, really destructive. Uh, To verbally attack an individual and their personhood rather than their idea can really backfire big time. To impugn the character of another person can really be extremely destructive. I'm sure that some of you know exactly what I'm saying, especially if you're being the recipient of this type of critical spirit. Believe it or not, the famous poem, poet, Alfred Tennyson, Lord Alfred Tennyson, one of the most famous poets, he had a very critical grandfather. As a matter of fact, when young Alfred Tennyson uh, wrote a eulogy uh, for his grandmother and in, 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 in poetry, his grandfather gave him ten shillings, and he said to him, there, 
That's the first money you ever made out of your poetry. And take my word for it, it's the last. But we know the rest of the story. So stay tuned, please, because today we come to the very last in a series of messages which I entitled it, Appropriating the Happiness That's Already in You. Appropriating that happiness. And we're going to see this by judging carefully. Judging carefully. Now, a lot of our kids are taking classes online, so let's say, class, we're going to review. I'm going to test you now and see if you can remember the last seven ones, right? You ready? I think they might give you a cheat sheet here. First was by being, secondly by being, then by being law-abiding. Come on, keep going. Then, and today... Continuing in this appropriating of the happiness that is in you by judging very carefully. Matthew 7, 1 to 12. As we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm delighted that's Sonny's favorite uh, passage. Page 1505 in the Pew Bible. And so many of you have told me how much you love standing up and reading the Word of God. So we're going to do that. Matthew 7, verses 1 to 12. But Uh, We're going to read that, and if you stand up with me, I am going to uh, basically say the, the first verse, and then you take it up from there. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Go ahead. Father, I'm so inadequate to even expound the words of your Son, our God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But only the Holy Spirit can truly take those words that God the Son has spoken and apply them to our hearts. May He reign and dominate the words and the thoughts 
In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. What is this judging that Jesus is talking about? And probably out of all the passages in the Scripture, this one is the most misunderstood by a vast number of people, whether they're Christians or not. So what is this judging? Is he saying that we need to suspend our critical faculties? <laughs> is he saying that we um, just need to accept falsehood and, and never say anything about false teaching that is being false teaching? Uh, should we just accept it? Is Jesus telling us uh, to accept sin and rebellion without any uh, complaint and take them as an acceptable thing? What is he saying? Well, I know that sometimes in the movies and the, and, and the television, when you hear somebody who is doing the wrong things and they know that they're doing the wrong thing, and out of guilt, they will say, don't judge me. Don't judge me. You probably heard it in your home. Don't judge me. Well, what's that mean? No, our Lord is not telling us to turn a blind eye towards sin and rebellion. Jesus is not telling us to turn a blind eye or be willingly accept perversion and say, well, that's okay. No, 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 no. Remember, this whole Sermon on the Mount, that we've been going through it, that we've been spending quite a bit of time with it, going through this, we saw the entire time there is a contrast between true religion and false religion, between spiritual truth and spiritual hypocrisy, between God's righteousness that is in Jesus Christ imputed on the believers and self righteousness, between the truth and falsehood, uh, between uh, the internal faith and the external uh, rituals and the appearances of the, of, of the Pharisees, between God's way and man's way. It's a contrast all the way through. In fact, if you go down a few more verses where we stopped at 12, if you go down to verse 15 of Matthew 7, you see our Lord Jesus saying, beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. In other words, you need to judge between those who speak truth and those who speak falsehood. We need to judge messages, whether they are sound doctrine or false teaching. We, we need that, to beware of false teachers. That is one of the warnings our Lord gives us. So what does this, what Jesus mean by this Judge not, lest you be judged. I'm glad you asked. The word, the Greek word for judge or judging is krino. That's K-R-I-N-O, krino. Now, here's the bad news, okay? There are 12 different shades of meaning to that word, <laughs> And that is why I told you people really get them confused. Twelve different… You say, well, how do we know? From the context. From the context. That's why we send people to seminary and spend four years and lots of hours of studying. From the context. So what does Jesus mean here in Matthew 7, 1? Judge not. First of all, he's referring to judging of another person's motive. You see, judging motive 
literally the Lord is saying is a no-no. <laughs> no one can judge another person's motives except God Himself. Can I get an amen? amen? Now, we can judge action. We can judge words. We can judge policies. We can judge activities. But we cannot judge motives. Secondly, it is a reference to hasty judgment. Hasty judgment. Judging before all the facts are in. You know people like that. Judging before all the evidence are in. Proverbs 18.13 said, He who gives an answer before he hears is folly. Only God is omniscient. Only God has all the facts in hands. Only God sees the past, the present, and the future. But there's more. There's more. Hasty judgment is often merciless judgment. Often merciless. And merciless judgment manifests the wrong view of God, who is a very merciful God. And that is why judging motives is the same as playing God. It's playing God. Now, I want to make this very abundantly clear. I, I, I know, I, I know you, you, you're following me so far. <laughs> I don't want you to misunderstand this. Jesus is not, not, not asking us to stop discerning and denouncing sin. Did you get that? Say amen. Thank you. <laughs> but he is saying, don't be quick to judge your brother or your sister's motive. Why? Because the very standard by which you're going to judge your brother or sister's motive, God is going to use that same standard by judging your motives. Listen, those of you close to me know, I often find myself crying out to God especially before I make a major decision. We are barking on something, and, and I, I, my, my cry to God is almost on a daily basis, Lord, sanctify my motives. Because the prophet said, who knows the heart is deceitful. So I cry to God, sanctify my motives, purify my motives. Let my motives, all of them, not just some, all of them, be for your glory and for the edification of the body of Christ. Let me illustrate uh, this premature judgment. Uh, a story told about uh, an American bishop by the name of Bishop Potter. Bishop Potter was uh, traveling to Europe from the United States on one of those transatlantic ocean liner. But that, remember, this is in the 1900s. It feels like a million years ago. And so, in those days, the ships were not as big. I mean, now they tell me it's like a city floating. Uh, but this was, ships were not as big as back, as, as back then as they are now. And often, passengers shared cabin with other passengers. And they don't know who they are. They just get allotted a passenger and, and, um, in, in the cabin with you, and, um, and they did not know each other. So Bishop Potter goes into his cabin, and he takes a look at his roommate <laughs> and immediately goes to the purser's desk. 
And he asked if he could leave his gold watch. I don't know what the bishop doing with a gold watch. And his valuable in the safe. He explained to the purser, he said, you know, I just been to the cabin. I took a look at my, uh, my uh, man who's accompanying, the other, uh, accompanying me in the other berth. And, and, and he, said, he said, I just took one look at him. And from his appearance, I think he's not very trustworthy. And the person said, yes, of course, I can take your stuff, valuable, and I'll put them in the safe, and you'll be okay. And, and, and he took them away and, and, and put them away, and he came back and said, now, by the way, Bishop, your roommate was here a few hours earlier, <laughs> and he left his valuables <laughs> because he thought the same thing about you. <laughs> I'm sure he looked at his pink shirt and clerical collar and said, wow. <laughs> and so, my beloved friends, first of all, judging motives can distort our view of God. Judging motives, secondly, can distort our views of ourselves, can, can distort our own views. Look at verses 3 and 4. Here, I want to use your, I want you to use your imagination. Just, just, just for a few seconds, okay? Use your imagination. Imagine you are watching or looking at a comic strip. Seriously. And here is a, an eye surgeon. And he is performing a very delicate eye operation in order to remove dust from the eyes of his patient. But instead of a magnifying glasses so he can see clearly, he's got two logs in his eyes. Now, obviously, it's not like the eye doctors we have in this church. <laughs> Big two logs blocking his vision. You say, Michael, that is ludicrous in the extreme, and you'll be exactly right. <laughs> and that's what Jesus is saying here. But it's all connected. When we judge a person's motive, your view of God becomes distorted. And when your view of God becomes distorted, your view of yourself becomes distorted. Which brings me to the critical person again. <laughs> the person who's constantly judging another person's motive. Particularly in the body of Christ. He's talking to the believers here. I'm going to sh show you how he switches, but he's talking to the believers. Judging motives is counterproductive. I know you hear people say, you know, I'm going to fix him. I'm going to change her. I'm going to do this. and I'm going to straighten him out. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you heard people do this. Say that, Okay. Just let that between you and God. If you ever said that, this remind me of the, the, the mother of the bride who was trying to calm her daughter before the wedding. She was nervous. And so the mother said to her daughter before the wedding, mother of the bride said, um, just think about the ceremony and the church. And she said, what is in the church? She said, there is an aisle. So just keep saying, aisle, 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 aisle. What else is in the church? Well, there's an altar. Just keep saying, altar, altar, altar. What else is going to be there during that wedding ceremony? 
Well, him, the groom. So say him, him, him. And so keep saying, I will alter him. I'll alter him. I'll alter him. <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong. Wrong way to go about it. <laughs> See, the, the, the reason we often make, make such a fuss about somebody else's eye, the speck in their eye, is because we are hoping to divert attention from them seeing the big logs in our eyes. <laughs> you see, the reason why we often look for something to criticize somebody else is because we are internally holding something that's even worse as diversion. As we've been seeing throughout the series of messages, the worst sin is the sin of self-righteousness. The worst sin is the sin of self-righteousness because a self-righteous person can never be saved. Jesus said, and I preached on this in the last several weeks, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you say, wait a minute, these guys are meticulous. How can anyone to have righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees? Yeah, the righteousness of Jesus. That's the only righteousness that surpasses those guys. <laughs> and He gives it to us. He imputes His righteousness on us. So God the Father looks upon us as if we have never sinned. See, that's the worst sin. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the person who sees no sin in their own life. Or even if they see sin in their life, they minimize it. They, 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 they rationalize it. They, they ignore it. Or they, oh, blame somebody else for it. The devil made me do it. Not you know, that, me, not him, not her. Please hear me right. Jesus is not saying to turn a blind eyes on your brother's sin. Not at all. Not for a moment. But you better do some self-examination and do some confession and repentance of your own sin before you can point your finger or help somebody else over their sin. Once you're able to mourn over your sin. And that's the very, very, very first message. Blessed are you who mourn over your sin. That's, that's the first of the Beatitudes. But once you're able to mourn over your sin, once you're able to repent of your sin, then you're able to help your brother or sister. Only then will you be able to see their sin in proper perspective. Only then will you be able to see God as the only perfect judge. Now, you notice from the Scripture, that's always is a balance here between one's confession of their own sin and then able to help others with their sin. You remember the story of David, I know you do, and, and Bathsheba and Uriah and and, 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 and he just was going along his happy, merry way until the prophet Nathan comes in and he confronts him. And then he cries buckets and he repents. And then he's, he writes Psalm 51. It's the psalm of confession. In fact, we use it here at some 
of our communion services. There's a balance in that psalm, and I want to show it to you. I'm going to show it to you in black and white. What does David say? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. What is David doing? He's doing self-examinations. He's taking the logs out of his eyes. He's confessing his own sin. And then and only then he's able to say, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Only then. Same thing happened in the New Testament. We know Peter and, and, and how he ended up in the mess he's, he was in and had to weep very hot tears for denying his Lord. Beloved, you cannot minister effectively to another person when you have a sin in your life. You have to first repent of your sin. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32, only after Peter's repentance and weeping these hot tears was he able or commissioned by Jesus to strengthen his brothers. Here are the words of the Scripture. Jesus speaking to Simon Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. After you turn, don't miss that, after you turn, then strengthen your brothers. Any confrontation of sin in another person's Life must be done, beloved, listen to me, must be done in meekness. It must be done in humility, not in pride, for we have nothing to brag about except the blood of Jesus Christ. But I know some of you already looking down and saying, what does Jesus mean by giving that is holy to the dogs and not throwing pearls in front of swines. What is that all about? Well, listen very carefully. Those of you dog lovers, listen carefully, okay? <laughs> listen. <laughs> People ask me if I love dogs. I said, yes, I love dogs in your house. <laughs> you have to understand that back then, 2,000 years ago, in the Jewish culture, Dogs and pigs were considered to be scavengers. They're wild. That's how they viewed them, rightly or wrongly, but you have to understand, otherwise you've missed the Scripture. That's how they viewed dogs and pigs. And so, they were always a symbol, or they symbolize people who are non-discerning people, who are non-repentant people, who are self-righteous people, who are stubborn people. They resemble those who mock and spur God and His mercy. That's how they refer to them. Have I, have I lost you? Have I lost you? Good. I want to hear no with conviction. So watch this. This whole time that we've just been looking at so far, Jesus is talking about brothers and sisters in Christ and families and homes and church, family, But then at verse 6, he literally switches gears. He switches gears. Uh, 
And same theme, but different application. Now we're going from dealing with sisters and brothers and we're going to dealing with the pagans, with those outside of the Christian faith, with those who are non-believers, the blasphemers, the ones who have rejected the truth. He tells us how to deal with those too. He tells us uh, uh, how to deal with those who have perverted the truth and twisted the truth. And hear what Jesus is saying, if and when they've rejected your message, you witness to them and they rejected your message, what you need to do is just leave them to me. Don't keep on flogging a dead horse. <laughs> are you with me? Sadly, there are too many Christians who are so busy shooting at each other and attacking each other, they don't have any energy left to witness to the outside world. They're so busy shooting down the saints, they don't have ammunition left to tell people about the love of Christ. In fact, a story told back in the 1750s, there was a war between the French and the, and the British in Canada, 1750s. And the commander of the British fleet by a man by the name of Admiral Phipps. Admiral Phipps was told by his superiors, get your boat, your war boat, and park near Quebec and wait for an order. When the ground troops come, you can give them cover and support them. So Admiral Phipps arrives early, much too early. And he kept wandering around, and he got bored. Oh, be very careful when you get bored. <laughs> he was bored. And he became so annoyed looking at these statues of the saints on a tower of a cathedral. And so he ordered his men, put their cannons toward the saints, and shoot the saints down. <laughs> and we don't know how many rounds they fired and how many statues they knocked down. But when the land forces arrived and the signal was given to attack, the admiral was of no help. He wasted all his ammunitions on the saints. So don't waste your ammunitions on the saints. Don't waste your ammunition on the saints. Have your powder dry for witnessing to those who are outside of the faith. Look at verses 7 to 12 of Matthew 7. Look at them with me, getting close to the end. Instead of shooting... The saints, what you need to do is pray. Ask, seek, and knock. Because you have a benevolent Father, a merciful Father, who wants to give good gifts to His children. And we saw that in the last message. Uh, he, he wants to give good gifts to those who are broken in spirit. He wants to give gifts to those who trust Him and trust His promises. He wants to forgive, and that is why, as a forgiving Heavenly Father, He said, Ask, because He is so wise and a wise Heavenly Father. Therefore, Jesus said, Seek, because you have a generous-hearted Father. Knock on the door and keep on knocking. Who of you, 
When your child asks you for something good, you give them a scorpion or, or a stone. But Jesus is not talking about material things. For we saw in the last message, if those of you who are not here, if you don't go download, download it from the apostles.org or from Leading the Way, download it and watch it. Because God promised His provisions that He's going to provide. He's going to meet all the needs of those who seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And here He's talking about spiritual blessings that is beyond our ability to comprehend. God's common graces like the rain and the sun, they come on everybody, believers or non-believers. But there is a special grace that God promised only for those who put their trust in Him, that He have promised those who place God as the master over every aspect of their life. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying to His own about the spiritual blessings that comes with salvation, daily forgiveness, daily deliverance, daily peace, daily contentment, daily increase in faith, hope, and joy, daily victory over Satan, daily triumph over temptation. Ah, daily victory over the critical spirit and daily overcoming judgmentalism and judging motives. Someone will say, well, Michael, if God knows all of our needs, why do we ask, seek, and knock? That is a great question. I am so glad you asked it. You've been asking some good questions today. This is really a great question. I, I have a three-prong, these are not three points, but there are three things very quickly, I'll tell you. It won't take but a minute. In fact, if you blink, you miss them. I have a three-prong answer. First of all, prayer suppose or presupposes knowledge. So what is knowledge? God, knowledge of knowing that God only going to give you that which is according to His will. You got that? Therefore, it is our responsibility to discern the will of God. I prayed with so many people discerning the will of God uh, through the years. I, I, I'm telling you, I, I need to write a book on it. How do you discern the will of God for your life? By getting to know Him. I'm not talking about know about Him. A lot of people know about Him, but getting to really, really know Him. And beloved, listen to me. Whatever it takes, however long it takes for you to get to know God and spending time with Him and His Word, you need to do it. There is no substitute for it. That is the only way you become discerner and a discerning believer. Secondly, prayer presupposes faith. It's one thing to know the will of God. And it's another thing to trust Him that He's going to fulfill His will. Beloved, I've been there many times. In fact, I'm going to tell you more. One time I was absolutely certain of the will of God. I mean, I heard God literally audibly. But it took six years <laughs> for Him to fulfill what He already promised. I could have given up, and I was tempted many times. Even when others give up, even when others get impatient, even when others move on, 
Even when others say, well, God is not giving me what's on my grocery list, I'm out of here. Ah, but you keep on trusting, keep on believing, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, because if your prayer and your praying according to the will of God, sooner or later, God will answer that prayer. Beloved, listen to me. God's delay is not always denial. And the third thing I want to tell you in answering your wonderful question, why do we seek, ask, and knock? Because prayer presupposes desire, a longing in the heart. You have to have that longing in your heart. Because you may know the will of God. You may even believe that God's will will be fulfilled. But it's really having the desire for the will of God. I used to have a friend, she went to be with the Lord now, but she used to say, I'm afraid to discern the will of God <laughs> because I may not like it. Hello. I know that's more common than you realize. But if you desire the will of God with all of your heart, you will discern that He and His will for you is never punitive. Did you get that? He loves you too much for that. And He will always, always, always give you what is best for you because He sees the future. You don't. He will always give you that which is for your best interest in the long run. We're always thinking about the short run, but God is thinking of the long run. He knows what's happening. I remember one time I was preaching, and I said, you know, there's some prayers I prayed in my younger years, and I'm now thankful to the Lord. He never answered them. <laughs> Somebody told me afterward there is a country song that, uh, that says, you know, thank God for unanswered prayer. i got to dig it up. See, we're always looking for the short run, but he's looking for the long run for you and your family, your future. Everything is in the long run in God's mind. When you desire his glory above everything else, when you come in total agreement with him, he will bless you out of your socks. I know of what I'm talking about. That is my testimony. <laughs> it really is my testimony. In fact, these three things, asking, seeking, and knocking, they are in the present imperative. This is not take it or leave it. It's in the present Im imperative. Those of you grammarian, you understand what I'm talking about. But not only that, they are in the ascending order. They are in the ascending order. Before you ask, you must know what you're asking is according to his character. According to his character. And when you know what the will of God is, you must unfailingly believe that he will grant it. If it took years, he will. Now, beloved, as I said, I've been there on several occasions. One time, it took six years. I said, Lord, I know what, I know, I, I know that's your will. But he let me wait and wait and wait. And the longer I waited, the greater the desire of my heart for that will of God. He was preparing me. He was preparing my heart to receive because I would not have been prepared to receive at the time. 
Sometimes people that pray the will of God, and they want the will of God, but they don't have a prepared heart to receive the will of God. How to overcome the critical spirit? How to overcome judging others' motives? By spending time with Him and His Word, asking, seeking, and knocking, and never give up. Father, this is your word. These are not my words. And because they challenged me through the years, they're challenging us now. There may be a person here today who's afraid of your will. Father, I pray that you reveal reveal to them your graciousness, your mercy, your love, and your grace for them. Father, I pray for broken homes and broken marriages right now that you would help these, your servants, to discern that it is the best thing for them to stay the course and trust you for all the future. There may be somebody here who's uncertain about which college to go to or what person to marry. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, help them spend time with you to discern your mind and then be willing to prepare their hearts to receive it for I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.